0: Podcast Revolution Network presents
1: The way with the Noah And welcome to another edition of The Way of Fanoa. You guys are getting like so much content back to back. I had two um interviews recently with Professor Jared Ball, and we talk a little bit about Pan Africanism and some of the discussion around uh ADOS, African descendants of slavery, and not so much as a criticism or critique, but just kind of I wanted to talk to him some. It's about Pan-Africanism, his experience with it. What does it mean? And just really this rush to kind of discard uh, prior ideologies for something new. And that's not a criticism or critique to anyone that considers themselves a part of this newer movement or that sees value in you know this new hashtag. But uh, just a conversation between myself and Professor Ball coming out of a particular school of thought and organizing Just that we can't just summarily dismiss what we don't have a very good, clear, educated understanding of. And in terms of Pan-Africanism, what does it mean? You know, thinking about some of the forefathers and foremothers, um, just had a wonderful interview that will come up soon with um, Ajwa Ayatoro, who is a professor uh, and lawyer and practitioner of amazing things, as well as, uh, a leading voice in reparations movement about numerous people who had, you know, long had a history in doing this work. And one of the people that she lifted up was Queen Mother Moore. It is International Women's Day. So the work of folks like Sojourner Truth and Queen Mother Moore are definitely with us today and every day. And we and this is kind of what, you know, Professor Roll and I get into in our conversation and then, um, which I, I appreciate Professor, Professor Ball and his critical analysis at the world around us in general. And particularly as he looks at, you know, media and communication mechanisms and how we engage and build on ideas, which, as he says, needs to happen not just in a 30-minute podcast interview or in some quick tweets, but in really in-depth conversation and building in real time outside of some of these spaces. My second conversation for this episode was with Malika Jabali. Malika's amazing, dope, brilliant sister, public interest attorney out of New York. She has roots down here in Georgia in the South. Uh, she wrote a really amazing piece last fall called "The Color of," the color of economic anxiety, and it really blew the door open on a lot of the conversations that myself, Wendy Muse, and others had been having. Um, and Malika and I, we had bonded over a tweet I had. And she was like, "Girl, yes, this is my article." I was like, "Ooh, I'm a fan. I already read it. I've already shared it." And so we have a good conversation. I look forward to following up with Malika on more work. We had these conversations kind of like before and in the midst of all the reparations dialogue that have been happening with all the presidential um, candidates. So this is happening. This is getting aired just a little bit after some of what's happened in a more recent week, but. One thing Malika and I continue to talk about is, yes, we are absolutely pushing and we we know that universal economic programs are something that we need to all be fighting for. But people say they understand that it's both race and economics, race and class. But a lot of the actions and words that we're seeing from people around us don't reflect that understanding and practice, right? And our practice and practice need to match up. And so we need to continue having these dialogues and conversations and also pushing people as they're actually building in space and organizing with real people on the ground in real time. So that's something I'm definitely going to follow up with Malika about more as she talks more about the work that she's done in East Brooklyn and other parts of uh, the country because Malika being in New York, she went to Milwaukee and did some really big, deep, deep diving for this, this, this anxiety piece that she wrote in, uh with current affairs. So check this episode out, like, share, subscribe, hit me up on Patreon, patreon.com slash the way with Fanoa, trying to bring you good conversations with good people doing good work. Um, and so here is the episode. Like I said, I know they've been a little bit longer I have maybe one more that might be a little longer. That's just because these conversations have been so amazing. Um, they're just too good to, to chop down and, and weed out. All right, here you go. Peace.
2: Greetings everyone and welcome to another edition with The Way of Vanilla. I am always excited, and we go through this all the time. I'm always excited because I talk to very amazing people who do amazing work and have great conversations. And today I get to talk with someone who I had a brief, you know, chat with, you know, many moons ago. Um, about the Congress of Resistance, he was Congress of Resistance, but this is someone who does really amazing work. They have a very catchy uh, mixtape podcast of their own, which is actually based off of one of my favorite quotes. Um, so I am talking today with Professor Jared Ball, who is the host of I Mix What I Like, which, if you know anything about that phraseology, it is a play on I Write What I Like by Steve Biko. I think I got that correct, right, Professor?
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely.
2: <laughs> <laughs> when, I saw, when I saw your explanation of it, I was like, oh, that's so dope, because I write what I like is one of my favorite quotes. Um, and Steve Vico is someone that I'm really fond of just from just being a kid, except for I really wish we could get a redo of Cry Freedom that didn't focus on, the Donald, on Donald Woods and his family for most of the movie. But, you know, well, you, that's, that's, that's early Hollywood. We would
0: have to I, – I mean, we would have to have a movie that was based in Steve Biko's work and not in Donald Wood's Absolutely. Work. I mean, Absolutely. so to be fair to the film, with all my problems with Hollywood, if you base a film in the white guy's book, <laughs> it's going to be his story. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. If you it in the white guy's book. Mm. I mean, I Cry Freedom is a beautifully done movie. And it was a favorite. For whatever reason, Crash Freedom and Malcolm X are, like, some of my favorite movies from when I was younger, which, you know, you guys know how I grew up. It, it, it makes sense. But at the same time, like, it got to a point where I just would stop. Well, after the funeral scene when everyone is gathered and they're seeing Kosey Lele, I stopped watching after that point because I'm like, I really don't care anymore. <laughs> um, this is no longer yeah, I mean, about Kosey Not that it's not a good thing to you. watch, but I just, like, yeah. mm,
0: well, I, we, can, we can talk a, another time about this, this, mm-hmm. this new developing uh, um, uh, Vernon philosophy of black media avoidance that I'm trying to develop. Yes. I would probably argue we shouldn't watch those movies anymore, but I do basically want to just quickly agree with you that, that Denzel has been in two movies, uh, uh, nominally about two of my favorite people. Uh, mm-hmm. both of which were woefully lacking in, in – in, in, uh, and I think actually this is a good segue to our conversation because they were both yes. woefully lacking in context and definition and clarity uh, uh, in terms of the politics uh, of, mm-hmm. of, the, of the, the, the the men involved, the men who, again, nominally were supposed to be the subject of this film. And and I think that is in many ways uh, a perfect segue to I know what we're talking mm-hmm. about today. So, I mean, Absolutely. <laughs>
2: So, so, and well, for those who might not be able to guess, the other movie is. Oh, it's
0: about Malcolm X, right? I'm right, sorry. Yeah. right, right, right.
2: I'm just saying, uh, like, yeah, right, I mean, right, I just Spike I'm just saying. Malcolm X, like,
0: and and right, 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 right. I'm sorry, yeah. Which, and also, which is by the way, but <laughs> it's just not I'm about like, Malcolm X. It. <laughs> 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 right. It doesn't really gra- grapple with. Not just. I mean, I think you, you know, literally I mean, have to wait ninety yeah. minutes before you see Malcolm. I think that's yes. the count I got last when I yes. last looked at it. You have to wait 90 minutes before you see Malcolm X and by the time he appears the, the credits are rolling and we haven't had uh, particularly his pan-african again yes. you know segment looking to the segue, his his pan-africanism is missing. It's very strange historically yes. that the, you get more of Malcolm's pan-africanism in in Will Smith's Ali film in the brief feature Ooh, with Malcolm yes. in that film than you do in the whole Spike Lee movie which is you know, I
2: agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. And it definitely does take us into our conversation. Only the only thing I will say is, I felt like I got so much more about Malcolm from actually the end post, you know, funeral scene when you have Ozzy Davis's uh, uh, eulogy being, right. you know, said over top of those scenes. I feel like when those final clips, you know, talking about, you know, he, did you ever know Malcolm? Did you ever talk to Malcolm? You see so much more of his, you know, just entire humanness. Right, because he's 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 such a one-dimensional singular character for a lot of the movie, right? And he transitions almost as if he's just solely an obedient, you know, soldier to theology or you know a particular, you know, philosophical like viewpoint. But you're right, it never really goes deeply into, you know, pan Africanism and exactly all that. You know, just as we talk a lot about with Dr. King and the 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 last like 18 months, two years, however many three years of his life and work, you know, that last stretch of time that Malcolm X was on Earth with us is so crucial and vital to legacy, to understanding his work and who he was and what he was doing, so, but then it's, it's, it's absolutely missing. He comes back and he's like, white well, people aren't that bad anymore, and that's really, you don't get much more than that. But but I think that that characterization leads us to this conversation we're going to talk about in terms of what, what getting into what even is Pan-Africanism and how does it fit into our contemporary understanding as Black people in America, those of us who are descendants of enslaved Africans in this country, whether on both sides of our family on one side, whatever, however it breaks down for you, but also like what it, what what it is, how it actually represents. It's not simply quoting Garvey Africans for the Africans at home and abroad. It's not simply you know understanding that Malcolm X had this broader context, or even that even with you know King having a relationship with Kuma, like it's, it's it's so much deeper than that. So professor. I reached out to you because I'm like, oh, this is somebody I know who knows what they're talking about when it comes to, you know, these topics and can have a conversation that is just, like, historical and puts into, like, real perspective without really getting into the personalities of, of different, um, you know, ideologies and stuff that may be, like, currently popular. Um, so you can you talk to us a little bit about, like, just panachronism and then we can talk a little bit more about how it relates to the work and spaces that we're
3: building today.
0: Sure, and, and I want to start off by saying what I said in, in the online sort of debate that arose mm-hmm. in, uh, around this and the ADOS uh, uh, Well, you know, I guess um, that's actually uh, good, good
2: context, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and, and the first thing, I, and I just want to say, the first thing, as I said to, to the ADOS supporters online is what I would say to you and your audience here, that I don't want anyone who hears me to, to limit whatever they might think of this topic to how well I do or don't do in defining it. And that's why I was telling that, like, you know, we can't really have this discussion in one exchange on Twitter anymore than we could probably have it in in one, you know, relatively short conversation in in an interview. Uh, uh, And it shouldn't be about how well does Jared break down pan-Africanism in a few tweets and how well does that impact an audience. Same thing with a, even a, a, a broader conversation. It shouldn't be about how well does Jared do in defining it. It should be ultimately about how well uh, uh, is it studied and collectively organized around and how much do people really engage it on their own. So that said, I mean, we do have to understand that pan-Africanism means a lot of different things to a lot of people and historically has meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people and, 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 and has been deployed, and as I argued there and I would say here, has been deployed in its varieties by every single individual or organization that we can think of related to the the black uh, liberation struggle in the United States or really throughout the African diaspora. So mm-hmm. so simply put and I would go back to just one of my 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 uh uh you, you know uh, respected elders uh the late Dr. Ron Walters who has written a book on the subject and and mm-hmm. written much more on it. And he simply broke it down, you know, that there's a a cultural Pan-Africanism and there's a political Mm Pan-Africanism. And and I think that this gets lost in the conversation. For me, I am, you know, a Kwame Nkrumahist, a Kwame Tureist of sorts, you know, and so I believe in their specific definition, which is United States of Africa uh, under scientific Mm -hmm. socialism. So that's one specific deployment of the concept. Now, there's the, 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 a more broader and general cultural form, which is where basically black people just say, wherever I see other black people, we are all black people. So we all, you know, we, we're we all just crewed up wherever we may be. Uh, right. You know, so, in, you know, in Garvey's version, simply put, he just went from Jamaica all throughout Central and South America and the Caribbean and said, dang, everywhere I go, People who look like me are treated almost the same. Well, wait right. a minute! It's because we all ended up over here through more or less the same series of processes. And this is, you know, and, and with all due respect to the to the to the African history and the Ivan Van Sertima's and all the work that shows that African people have been here long before enslavement and all of that. What what what, what you know more generally speaking, within the last five hundred years, we're talking about a situation where black people are saying we're responding to a collective similar enslavement process. Where, as John Henry Clark used to point out, it doesn't matter where the slave ship dropped you off, it's it's the matter Mm -hmm. of the fact that you were snatched from Africa and sprinkled all over the the Western Hemisphere and put to the same work, and your African cultures were were destroyed or or attempted to be destroyed, Uh, but your Africanisms have just been suppressed, and as Kwame Ture would say, it is just the job of the conscious. To make the unconscious conscious of their unconscious behavior to see that we're mm. all africans we need to unite on that principle and have our revolution now there's other forms so there's other you know other and other deployments of this some people just as i said it's a simple of uh, simple thing of uh, even though we were joking this summer with the world cup and and, uh, and and i joke with some of my friends you know i watch the world cup like a lot of the africans watch the world cup and it's like if my team is gone uh, uh, I just go to the team with the most black players on it, and we just keep agreeing <laughs> for that team. And then it would turn yeah. out, and then the joke became, when France won the World Cup, well, you know, 90% of the team is from the African Diaspora. So it became this joke about, well, how look at how Africa won France the World Cup. And it right. wasn't... So it's just that kind of, you know, and when we see black people doing quote unquote, well, we just like, I'm happy to see a black person. do it. So there's that pan African And then again, there are other forms. I define my my specific form and there are other versions of it. Every And as I said, every, every organization we can point to has had a version of this where there was some attempt to link struggles here in the United States or elsewhere to other similarly situated struggles uh, uh, um, that the African diaspora were facing. And out of that came a variety of efforts and movements. Similarly, there's a, you know, Kwame Ture, actually I mentioned him already, we have on our mixwhatilike.org, I've always routinely go back to this this, and have posted it there, a great lecture that he gave years ago, talking about the history of Pan-Africanism, where he talked about it as a natural tendency. He said that, Many of us think of it as a political response to imperialism, but he said, if you look at human history, it was a it, pan-Africanism or what we understand of the, the, the coming together of African peoples uh, was a natural part of a process that was only interrupted by enslavement and imperialism. So that, that it would require a revolutionary process to get back on that path, but that this was a natural tendency that was then sort of differently politicized post-enslavement and post-imperialism colonialism as a political response. But I sound like to say Mm -hmm. that there are so many different ways of of addressing this and approaching it and and to see in some spaces it just get sort of diminished to, uh, as you, I think, were mentioning a popular reference to a a particular uh, uh, individual uh or uh, or one um uh, maybe even just one organization or as a as a or to, or being dismissed simply because there are individual continental africans who can be seen in popular media right. disparaging african americans i mean this that's just not an analysis and 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 so i was just trying to say as i would say to you and your audience don't disrespect every single black movement by throwing out this entire concept simply because you don't like one or the other form of application of it, if you right. do have a, a, a critique of it, lay out that criticism and explain to us how you define it, what you've seen its flaws, you know, are and, and 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 lay it out. But but what I was seeing so much of, and continue to see so much of, is just sort of these blanket, sort of uh, um, mm-hmm. ignorant in the in the literal sense of the term dismissals of the of the concept and and it's. Uh, frustrating, never mind the fact that I think politically we need it. Uh, right. But, you know, you know <laughs> it's just you know, frustrating just to see the, the some of the ways it, it is or isn't being discussed.
2: Well, I think you also raised a good com- a good point about, you know, we can talk, maybe you can give me some thoughts on this too, like with social media, right, like being able to have those conversations because certainly when, you you know, yourself and, you know, Even I think back to college having these conversations, we didn't – I mean, we might have had Black Planet, which apparently is a a thing again. But we didn't have this very intense 24-hour, like, accessible, instantaneous mechanism of digesting information, which is good to an extent, but it seems like it's actually shortchanged our ability to do, you know, actual contextual analysis and actually understanding information and providing critique and providing feedback and really engaging in discussion, especially on Twitter, which even with the extended character limit is still very short in terms of having to converse and the way in which people can just interject. It just seems like the mediums that even are being used right now are not necessarily even utilized consistently for advancing knowledge on topics. They can be, and a lot of people do use them that way. When we're talking about just looking at how some of these conversations are unfolding, It is just very adversarial and almost like, well, my squad is better than your squad type of thing versus, like, this is another, you know, space that we're seeing, and this is a gap we're seeing. So, like you were saying, like, maybe this is the critique and how we can make it better or even just understanding that there are, you know, multiple forms like you were laying out. It almost reminds me when people get into, like, what really is socialism conversation Mm -hmm. that a lot of folks have been having, too. Like, there's a lot of this in general, just in conversation, there are a lot of, really great com- concepts that don't seem to be commonly understood, and because there's a popular person that may have said something or did something, it's just taken, whether it's, you know, good or bad, and it runs with it. I mean, I know that, you know, pan-Africanism gets dismissed also because there are certain, you know, larger figures in particular spaces that, you know, may claim to adhere to certain tenets or, or, or you know, philosophies. And they're not necessarily seen as being, quote, unquote, good people, so then people use that to color everything connected to that phrasing, um, it's, and it's disheartening.
0: Well, I mean, I have uh, uh, admittedly uh, always been a sort of uh, uh, digital or new media pessimist uh, in that uh, mm-hmm. um, almost all of my professional work has, has been somewhat related to a critique of um, popular media and, and the 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 advance of the internet and social media, uh, and then the absence of political organization, which which makes all of that that much more uh, of a negative impact. So I mean I'm not surprised. I mean I always try to remind, you know, we have to always remember the internet itself is military technology, uh, and that uh, as Jay Ru, the Damager, famously said, in my generation of hip hop, you know, the, the 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 same chip that powers my Sega powers nuclear bombs. So we always have to remember that. The, the technology that we use for social media and tweeting and all of that is, is technology that in its origin is being used to surveil the planet, you know, guide weaponry, mm. um, mm-hmm. you know, ma- manage our public opinion and, and and, and uh, associated with other professional track of study, uh, deploy propaganda. So mm. in this mm-hmm. sense, it's, mm-hmm. it's doing, it, it's, it's perfectly situated. What we have here in the social media environment is a perfect, perfect uh, uh, um, storm for, or a cauldron for the development of, uh, so many of the negative things that you're talking about. So that's why we see uh, I mean it just makes it so much you know, that's why when Kwame go back and said that black power black visibility is not black power, he was trying to point Ooh. out forty, fifty years ago that when people mm-hmm. start to you, you can't confuse popular imagery with real political change. And we and, and in the social media world, we can't confuse, you know, popular followings with, with substance. And and that's something that's very difficult to manage, particularly for people who are of a generation that don't know anything about a world that didn't have internet. So similar to right. another conversation and where I think we're going to go, you know, towards the end here is that, you know, I'm coming at this, you know, not only just as a, as a, as a so-called academic, but really I'm actually coming at this as an activist and as someone who's in, who has been, who has spent a good portion of his adult life trying to be involved with, with grassroots, grassroots political organizations. So that's mm-hmm. why, you know, when I'm seeing a lot of the, the, the new debates around pan-Africanism popping up, What's frustrating to me, uh, uh, is that it's not happening in rooms where I spend a lot of my time face to face dealing with, with actual literature and grappling with ideas in, in extended sessions. And They're not just actual books, right. but actual study sessions over right, extended right. periods of time. So it's not just that right. we read Kwame Nkrumah once, we read him thoroughly and deeply and then debated and argued, yes. and then I went to school. You know what I'm saying? like, it was like yes. then I went to school. So so, so when people are saying, oh, he's just an Ivy Tower scholar or he's just, you know, a pan-African who's dropping names on us, but he's not really saying anything, what I'm really trying to say is, no, I've been already in these spaces, we're having all these arguments, and there's so mm-hmm. much more to it that we can't get to on Twitter, and I'm just trying to get you to see that, not even to agree with me, just to see that there's more to it. So it's the right. same thing when, when when people when you drop in a term like socialism. Uh, I mean, I was mm-hmm. one that was arguing, you know, not to my popularity, not you know, help popularity at all, you know, back several years ago that that Bernie Sanders was not a, a, um, a net positive sure. as many were arguing because he was dropping the term and to make it more popular. I, I was saying that that mm-hmm. his deployment of socialism, much like what I'm seeing with the popular redeployment of pan-Africanism in other spaces. His is 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 doing a disservice to the concept. It's, he's he's mm-hmm. not properly defining it. He's not properly arguing for it. He's not an an actual advocate for what socialism really is. So people who have never studied it, again, never been in those political organizing spaces, never done the studying, never had those arguments, have no traditional background with these ideas. When they hear it, they connect it to things he's saying now. Uh, relative to his political campaigns, and it's, e- even if they like it, it's, a, it's still a distorted version of, of of what the powerful possibilities as I see them are in a socialist uh, 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 revolutionary change. So uh, it, again, just leads me back to the same thing you, you were just talking about in terms of social media, that we have a, a real problem, which is, again, why I keep going back to Kwame Ture, who always said we have to be organizing all the time, because if we're not part of organization and we're not part of movements and we're not putting ourselves in uh um as as Sophia Bukhari said, uh, under the rapier knife of revolutionary criticism, then we're not who serious about quote? creating revolutions. Who, huh? who did you just quote
2: who did you just quote?
0: Sophia Bukhari, the 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 late, you know, Black Panther hero That's my little who, sister's godmother.
2: That's my oh, little wow. sister's
0: godmother
2: because that's my little sister, and her, and and my stepfather Masai, and my late uh, uncle were her comrades who were on the road with, wow. with her that day. So, yeah, oh, stop! Like, yeah, let me tell y'all. Let me tell y'all how legit Professor Bob, not that Professor Bobby, needs to instead <laughs> of his legitimacy.
0: Oh, yes, I'm so sorry to be late to this knowledge right here. No, and no, it, no. I'm no you're a okay. Hug off of that right now. You're okay. I'm extremely no, amped off of we, that. Um, no,
2: yeah, she um. My young, one of my younger sisters, that's her, because like I said, my, my stepfather, who is, uh, the, the acting chair of Jericho currently, and he's one of the oh founding board members of Critical Resistance, Messiah Halesy, who's one of her comrades. He did 17 years. I didn't, years, know, I didn't um, know, that's the connection. Yes, and then, and then my uncle, who was murdered in that same encounter, is um, that's my mom's oldest brother. So, yes, <laughs> I'm like, what yes, I sorry, everyone. I just had to have – I had a little moment right here in the middle of, the, in the middle of our conversations, but this, this is how deep – and we're talking about conversation. So growing up as a kid, you know, by the time I'm in middle school, I remember sitting – by then we were living in Chicago, and we would go to, like, the Puerto Rican Culture Center. We would be in these spaces. It was very boring for me. I'm not even going pretend like I was, like, some – an Uber Scholar kid and I was all excited. I was very bored at all this, but I picked up a lot because you're right in terms of how we're building knowledge, how we're actually building a community. Because it's great to have these conversations, on our podcast, but like that itself is not the change, right? It, it, it's it's it can be utilized as a part of it, right? And used effectively, it can be a tool for informing others. But it has to we we have to go beyond that. When we're talking about our organizing, we're actually talking about what does it look like to fundamentally shift and change the, the, the conditions of black people in the United States of America? And part of my challenge has been, which is why I wanted to talk to you about Pan-Africanism and how it fits into where we are you know, currently, is that I'm having her, as someone who, you know, I have a portion of my family that we very clearly understand that they are descendants of enslaved Africans who were here in the United States, these continents in the United States of America. The other part of my family, and then, if we talk about my stepfather's family, they are, you know, from late 1800s, before the late 1800s, they were enslaved Africans in the Caribbean. And so these mm-hmm. conversations we're having are, are as if there are these, like, very clear buckets of people who only contributed or didn't contribute in very particular ways. But
0: there is actually very
2: little post Reconstruction when we're talking about people coming. I mean, the boys, for example, his, his father was Haitian, right? So we have people who are contributing. Mm-hmm building collectively under what we see as, I mean, for lack of a better term, blackness in America, and, 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 and why I do understand there is some conversation about how do we talk about those people who are born here and some of the different data and indicators that talk about differences in educational attainment, jobs, I, mean, but, but I think that's a very necessary conversation to have, but I just feel like from what I've been taught and what I've learned that cutting ourselves off and as if we are completely separate from everyone else who is of the same condition as you were talking about earlier, like we were all taken and boats, dropped off at different ports, but we were all taken. Like I, if we're talking about breaking through the systemic white supremacy, the, 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 the actual systems of oppression that has put these conditions in place, that can't happen by just saying only this group does this this way. Like it, it just seems like there's a broader collective conversation And body of work, we need to be really embracing Um, when I'm thinking about this. And it's not to say anyone else is wrong or not right, but I just feel like we need to be having deeper conversations and more of them to understand exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about Pan-Africanism and how it relates to now. Like how, like, we're not quite in the 60s moment, but it's a very interesting feeling for what we've read and listened to about that time period.
0: Well, first of all, absolutely, there's, there's, there's so many important things that you raise here. I mean, the first, the, the first thing before I forget is that again, if you're coming out of, see, and I know we haven't really, we're not really talking about them so per se, but in the back of my mind, quite frankly, is this is this ADOs argument that's been going on quite quite heavily online. Uh, the American descendants of slaves who are arguing primarily that pan-Africanism is dead and the only way we can get reparations is to develop a movement for ourselves as descendants of American slaves from the United States. And we can't be looking to partner with people who don't want to partner with us. And, and you know, Africans keep saying that about black people and Caribbean people don't like, you know, Afri- and like, nobody likes each other, so we can't really build with them. And the stuff from the 60s is dead. My thing is, is how can stuff from the past be dead conceptually when all of the problems they sought to address are actually worse now than at their time? Ooh, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so, so now it may be. So, and this is why I keep coming back to it. It may be that everybody. So, I remember on one tweet I put out. I said something like, and I may have even mention uh, uh, Sophia card, but I was saying the re- they were people were saying to me, "You're just an academic who mentions these people's names, but you're not really blah 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 blah." And I was trying to point out that I mentioned their names to give everybody a reference point to know where I'm coming from. And then if you want to convince me or others of the correctness of your position, I would just need for you to then expel, explain to me how after reading and demonstrating your knowledge of Sophia Bakari and George Jackson and Malcolm X and Paul Robeson and Du Bois and the Sonny floor, and everybody, now after you've distilled all of that, if you can then show me where their analysis does not work. Then I'm 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 happy. Then let's have a discussion. Mm-hmm. But if it's just simply to say that they're old and therefore wrong, well, then that's not an analysis. And I would argue that that analytically, it's not that they were wrong. It's just that their their ideas hadn't been successfully organized around, and they were attacked mm-hmm. by the most powerful state in the history of the, of humanity. Absolutely. So so we can't just say that because you know I step on an ant on the sidewalk that the ant just bites fact of existence is wrong. No, it just got stepped on by a bigger, more powerful you know uh, right. whatever. Now, so 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 that's 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 one thing. If so to me, when you look at it from the from the perspective of somebody trying to 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 develop change or revolution, uh um, then then it it creates a different sort of obviously consciousness but context. So when when and this is, I think, a fundamental problem that the ADOS community has with, with people like me and others is that I'm looking at this from the perspective of somebody who wants to change the state permanently, mm-hmm. irrevocably. Right. Uh, and from that perspective, I'm seeing, I'm seeing uh, um, a history that says to do that, not only do we have to uh, develop an analysis that doesn't allow for our, 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 um, our oppressor to define us and label us, and limit us consciously, but we have to actually look to build allegiances and alliances with people in similar struggles around the world. And everybody has said that. So so when people in the ADOS community say, well, Pan-Africanism you know, abandons our particular needs, I'm saying, no, Pan-Africanism in the United States, for example, developed as a specific tactic to address the needs of Black Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Where the from the people you mentioned, Du Bois and Robeson and others, they weren't saying we're abandoning Black America. Malcolm X wasn't saying I'm abandoning Black America. He was. They were saying to get what Black America needs, it has to be addressed at the United Nations level. There has to be Absolutely. unity and organized efforts with continental Africans and people in the in the West Indies. And then, similarly, if we want reparations, by the way, in Cobra, uh, the National Coalition mm-hmm. of Blacks for Reparations in America, and many Which other things existed situations. for
2: decades, folks. It's
0: actually existed for decades. decades. Isn't the reparations
2: Right, and the reparations <laughs> conversation goes back to Reconstruction, so this is not a new thing, well, and you're right, well, about but, in but, right. They,
0: but my yes. argument, but their argument, I think is even stronger than that. It goes back, it goes, it goes not only to enslavement, but it encompasses all of the African experiences and says, for Absolutely. us to get what we deserve in the United States, the West yes. Indies and the Caribbean have to get what they get. Yes. And then, and never Absolutely. mind that when you want to get down to the details to really fully understand what is owed, you have to understand all the wealth that has been generated all around Absolutely. the world by what we have done just here in the United States. And then, lastly, mm-hmm. my point, and this is the point of the, the tweet I was making about Bernie and the socialism and reparations thing, is that, is, and where I think all of this gets lost, is that if, if, if um, Uh, And this is where, you know, I admit there's there's room for some some struggle and and, and debate and even disagreement, but but tactically what I was just trying to argue with with my reparations community and others is that, um, uh, not that I agree with what Bernie Sanders was saying the other day about, you know, developing institutional uh, uh, Mm -hmm. redress for black America. But, but I was saying that, that tactically, if we have to be, I think, realistic. To me, there's no way white America is going to sign off on giving over its oh, tax, right. any portion of its taxes to black people for reparations for anything. But well, we can't even get a study. For, right. We can't, we can't
2: even get, exactly. get a study commission.
0: Right. Yeah. So whether it's uh, Ocasio-Cortez saying we need to do it from the New Deal and make it for everybody, which I know the ADOS and other communities have, have critiqued or whether Bernie is saying what he's saying. My issue is, tactically, I would argue that if we really want reparations for black people, not only does it have to be a global struggle, but it has to be one that crosses even racial uh, 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 and ethnic boundaries within the United States. It really just needs to become Mm -hmm. a national, institutional struggle for redistribution of all the $23 trillion that we create as this country's GDP every year. And that's Mm -hmm. the only way I think we're gonna actually get anywhere. So in other words, poor white people, Certainly rich white people aren't going to do it, but poor white people and others are definitely not going to say, let's pay back black people for slavery or even since New Deal era stuff. Let's, let's give money to, we, they're trying to, they, collectively white people, we have to be frank, are really saying you all should be happy we aren't just killing you and enslaving you anymore. So really anything else is just sort of grazing. You We know, actually uh, had he one, had an exchange
2: with someone who actually said, well, Union soldiers died to freeze, so what, do, what more do you want? That's what I'm saying. So I was like, what? That's what I'm saying. Right? Like,
0: yeah. So yeah. they already think they've given. They, they First of all, even before that, the simple fact of snatching our ancestors from the continent of Africa, they feel is doing us a favor. Enslaving mm-hmm. us here is a step up from the savagery of the backwardness of Africa. So, so everything is just a benefit. So why are we complaining at all? And then at the other end, you have people who are saying, you know, uh, uh, we wanted we want to build a literal wall to keep everybody else out. Or at least, or rather, all the brown people out. Um, uh, so the idea that they're going to, you know, turn around and say, here's a significant chunk of, of our GDP, of our tax dollars, to 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 satisfy what we've done wrong. I don't think that's ever going to happen. They're never going to get Native Americans back any So the only way I could see it happening is if we had a a, a broad-based movement. This is not to say we have to – I'm not a hand-holding kumbaya, whatever. I'm just saying tactically, if the goal is reparations, similarly, tactically, if there's an electoral political struggle on some levels, but it has to unite beyond just black people and anybody else. Because if you're trying to convince a country to kick out all a huge chunk and if we're honest, reparations—you know—I think some tell you said it's in the trillions of dollars that would be mm-hmm. owed. So they would literally have to sink the Western economy if they really were to pay back what was owed. I would rather see something along the lines of a national movement that said we, we, we just want to redistribute the 23 trillion we create every year as a GDP for this country and make it so that nobody is desperate and nobody is without. And that way. We don't have to worry about whether or not one group will get what they deserve and of course black people deserve more than we would ever get but it's 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 just a tactic to say you know uh uh let's just have you know similar to what what some of the more progressive candidates are at least claiming to be pushing now let's push even farther and institutionalize Mm -hmm. and guarantee you know education and housing and employment and incomes and portions of the wealth that's created um, draw down the military budget, all those kinds of things, and, and, and create a situation where nobody is homeless, nobody's without a job, and the goal isn't uh, 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 a supremacy of profit, but uh, uh, an equitable redistribution so that nobody's really suffering. And then we can then, you know, uh, and then we don't have to worry about people being given checks and just paying them right back over to our, our the same, you know, corporations that are creating all the inequality in the first place. And we would have a situation where everybody um, uh, more or less can at least get a little bit of the boot off their neck, and then we can start organizing around the next level of, of, of world improvement. But anyway, so that's that's essentially what I was just saying. And if we understood what socialism really was and it stopped being attached to all these boogie you know, men and all these other myths, and if we really understood what pan-Africanism was and it was actually dealt with, uh, uh, as a political concept, or even just a code, you know, dealt with as it is in, in all its varieties and, and, and with some substance. Um, uh, and, and similarly, if we looked at reparations as an, as an institutional correction that prevented, you know, any forms of inequality being suffered by any of us going forward, I think, you know, a, you know uh, analytically or ph- philosophically, uh, ideologically, we would be, you know, at an advanced level.
2: Hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I definitely agree. I know my own criticism of Bernie has been less about what is tactically possible and more so in just the the what's obvious. His own limitation of being able to imagine when he can imagine so many other things. Uh, you know, a scenario where supporting reparations makes sense. And but I right, appreciate right. The, the the context and the way you broke it down in terms of being tactical, being strategic, and I know some folks don't like these words, but we need to be real about where we are living, organizing, and breathing in terms of the United States of America and what – this doesn't mean that you don't fight and push for, you know, these other things as well, but it's like a both-and. We need to have multiple lanes of, of work and, and organizing happening. So I really do appreciate you, you, you explaining that and breaking that down and for joining me today because this was an awesome conversation.
0: Any time, I appreciate it, and then I just want to restate again, if I can quickly, that that as I was saying, everybody else, uh, uh, it, none of these concepts should be you know should suffer the weight of my inability to defend. It. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So like, like right. please, you know, uh, please don't take my word for any of this, and, and 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 we should all be you know much more engaged in study and conversation, and that's really all I, I, I was uh, hoping to get out of this. So I appreciate definitely. It.
2: I appreciate you for taking the time to have a conversation. Where can people find you and catch the mixtape?
0: They can get all of our work at org and at like for all your relevant social media. And as I always say, we always say, uh, I'll say to you and your audience, thank you very much. And as Fred Hampton used to say to you, we say peace because we know you're willing to fight for it.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. We are, Ms. Manoa, we are back, you all. I'm, I am, y'all know me, I'm just like perpetually excited when I do my show and talk to great people because this is like my good space because I get to talk to good people who are doing good work, who are putting out really great content and really driving conversations that we're not seeing ultimately in, in many other spaces, particularly not in our mainstream you know, media dialogues. So back in October, right ahead of the midterm election, we had a piece that came out in Current Affairs, the, the Color of Economic Anxiety, and a lot of us shared it, and I know a lot of you all read it. Definitely, if you did not read or you need to brush up, the link is in the description. Um, the subtitle is, Is the Collapse of Democratic Fortunes Due to Economic Anxiety? Of course, just ask black Milwaukeeans. Now, this was like such a huge thing, right? For the first time in however many years, Democrats lost Wisconsin, and there yeah. was also conversation about the black voter turnout in Milwaukee being, like, really, really down. And we've also simultaneously had this conversation about, you know, rationalizing away the white voters who supported Trump, right? And a lot of it has been, oh, the economic anxiety. Oh, But, but economic anxiety is only talked about in most discourse since the 2016 election in terms of white voters. We don't hear it about anyone else that really at all except for when we finally got this brilliant piece by my author. Mm-hmm.
3: I'm going to let introduce herself right now.
2: <laughs>
3: Hi, thanks for having me. My name is mm-hmm. Malaika
2: Jabali. <laughs> Thank you so much, Malika, for joining me. Um, sis, just tell us a little bit about yourself, and then what made you write this piece?
3: I am a public policy attorney in New York City, and I also do freelance reporting, so I've done some writing for Glamour Magazine, Essence. Uh, news One, I really do try and mm-hmm. gear my work towards black audiences. I grew mm-hmm. up in a radical black household, and I know for a lot of our mainstream organizations, we don't own them. Um, mm-hmm. And that includes, you know, prior to uh, recently, you know, Essence wasn't owned by a black, uh, it wasn't black owned. Um, and a number of our outlets aren't. And so what I'd like to do is kind of bridge the, Black radical politics that I grew up with in our mainstream news organizations. So I really do like to put a lot of my work into these Black mainstream news organizations. And I'm also, if I don't have enough on my plate, as it is, I do activist work in East New York, Brooklyn. It's a predominantly Black working class community in East New York. And after the election in 2016, we knew we needed to take stock of what was going on. We focused on really training and getting more you know, everyday white people involved in the electoral process. And we knew we needed to talk to our community about what this meant. What does a Trump presidency mean for our people? But prior to that, we knew that we were suffering. Like we see, you know, the devastation of mass incarceration in our communities. We see the devastation of deindustrialization in our communities. So we know that regardless of who's the president, outside of electoral politics, we need mass organizing. But my focus on Wisconsin came about through a town hall meeting that we had with those community members in East New York. And I needed we needed to peel back the layers. We don't just get out in the streets and protest and be reactive. We like to be proactive and take an analytical approach to everything that we do. So when I went through the numbers to say, OK, what exactly happened with this election? Because most people weren't expecting it. Um, What we discovered was that there was so much disillusionment throughout the process. There was so much disenchantment for black people who were like, I feel like I'm choosing between a hard, a rock and a hard place, and we always have that. But it seemed like 2016 was a tipping point, and we just don't talk about that enough. So in Wisconsin, for instance, the black voter turnout was 47 percent, less than half of eligible voters voted in Wisconsin in 2016. That was down from 76%. So, Wisconsin was really a case study to say this is kind of the, um, this is like emblematic of a national problem. That problem comes from, you know, a lot of corporations leaving, offshoring, and people just don't realize that the manufacturing sector was disproportionately black in Wisconsin. So to me, it didn't make sense that the focus is so keyed in on the Midwest uh, white voters when there are so many Midwest black people who relied on these jobs who no longer had them, who had economic anxiety. So that's why I went there.
2: Well, and I I really appreciate that, right, that that, that context, because you're right. It's been so easy to dismiss. the, the, what we saw as basically a downturn in, 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 in black voter turnout. I mean, there's so many other things that went into play, too, too. in this past election, this is the first presidential election cycle we had post-Shelby and in, in gutting of the BRA. You know, we also saw what people were considering this huge explosion in, in black voter turnout in 2008 and in 2012 also coincided with Barack Obama and the apparatus that won Obama for America as well. So there, was also, there, were, there were all these different things that shifted, but we never really saw a deep analysis, well, not never, okay. but there were very few deep analyses of black voter turnout, particularly when we're looking at someplace like Milwaukee, like you were you're noting, these factors existed in the Midwest for white voters, why would they not exist also for black exactly. voters? There was a similar, there was not a, but there was a similar look at black voters in Ohio that Working America did, um, I think it was September of 2017, and it, 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 it was the same type of thing, that economic anxiety concerns about economy, people feeling like there was not a case being made that their lives were going to improve either way, so why Mm. did it matter voting? And so getting into your piece, because, again, like, I really appreciate the way you really drill down to, like, the most base level. I mean, you get down to... The zip code.
3: <laughs>
2: um. And we've now yeah. seen this in Wisconsin. Obviously, the first Black lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes, has been elected. I mean, we've we've seen we've seen people learning these lessons, whether they've read your article or others. We're seeing people hopefully learning these lessons, and we've seen some shifts in the way people are engaging in this past midterm election cycle. But I mean. You're talking about, you know, a city that does have a very large black population. You're talking about a city that does actually have a lot of systemic and structural I- issues, like many of our urban areas do, particularly when we're talking about northern and Mid- midwestern cities. Um, can you talk to me just a little bit about, like, some of the some of your findings in the course of doing this work and, and, and talking to folks in Milwaukee? Talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, some of your findings in the conversations you were having um, you know, with folks actually
3: in Wisconsin, and particularly in Milwaukee. Sure thing. So there were a few findings. Uh, one, I would say, is the data that I gleaned prior to going. So you had all these Brookings reports, like the two studies, and the just straight up electoral voter data um, that I went through. Census data that I went through, going kind of going back to like the 1960s. So there was a bunch of data that was informing the sorts of questions that I wanted to ask because there were studies that were showing that voter suppression was an issue. It's always going to be a factor when it comes to black people being empowered to vote. Uh, but based on uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison study, that wasn't the primary factor or even a major factor, at least in that one study, as to why people weren't interested, why black people in particular weren't interested in voting in Wisconsin. Um, There was also, if you look at some census data, it shows that the top reason that black people didn't vote throughout the country for those who said that they did not vote when they reported in the the census voter supplement, about 30% of folks, or I would say 20% um, gave these two answers. One of them was that they weren't interested. (laughs) They just weren't interested in the candidates. Another one said that they didn't think that the vote mattered. So you had about 40, almost half of black voters throughout the country. Who had some other reason beyond the fact that, you know, that we've got this systemic, uh, voter repressive scheme throughout the country. So when I went to Wisconsin, I wanted to ask people, well, why? Beyond those, you know, other, um, kind of legislative issues that are, are keeping them behind, what is it? But what struck me is when I just drove around the city, you could see that it was almost a, a skeleton of a place that was once very vibrant that was thriving for black community so the 53206 which is the neighborhood that i uh centered my work because they've got the highest black male incarceration in the country the highest black male joblessness in the country in this zip code about 50 percent for each i went there and it was so desolate you know there weren't even like fast food restaurants and we lament fast food restaurants in our community so much of it was just very visual and it, it created this visual reaction like there, almost like something catastrophic has happened here. So you could walk around and you can see abandoned factories. You could see, you know, blocks and blocks, city blocks of vacant land where a factory used to be, which was the center of economic life for this community that was once a middle class community that has now become the opposite. It's become like a, a place of economic despair. So that's what I saw and I wanted to talk to people of, about those experiences and so when I, you know, I went to, uh, to bars and barbershops and, you know, a lot of places where black people congregate I would just walked down the street and tried talking to people. I went to bus stops and I landed on a cafe that's not in the 53206 but it's in a nearby black neighborhood and I got to speak to some people who are working in the back in the kitchen and one of them is a brother named Juan who I highlighted in the piece and he said a lot of what he told me which is that Democrats and Republicans to him didn't seem like they made much of a difference and he had been kind of in and out of the criminal justice system but he found this Black-owned cafe that was willing to hire him. And there were so many people, um, so many young Black men who had stories like that and who have stories like that where the jobs, the economic uh, life of the community has basically been replaced by a prison policy. Instead of a jobs policy, it's become a prison policy. And that really resonated with me, and it's really, you know, a sad state of affairs that no one talks about this economic crisis that's happening right now in
2: our communities,
3: and Wisconsin is just one.
2: That context, too, about this even, you know, the studies and just kind of looking at some of the background information about what did play a role, but what you can talk about here in terms of when you're talking about these areas and you look at it, you know, high rates of poverty, um, lack of job and opportunity, particularly when you're talking about, we, we see a lot of communities when we're talking about, you know, Milwaukee, Detroit. Even parts of Chicago, we're looking at areas that did Buffalo, we're looking at areas that did have, um, you know, really solid working class communities at one point in time because of, uh, 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 you know, formerly mostly union type jobs, whether they were in the auto company industry or some of the factory type work that we know across the board has decimated, you know, American families and workforce. You know, over the last several years, the last couple of decades. Um so, so it's interesting how these conversations rarely ever happen in the co- context of black voters generally, or even as you're talking now about, you know, black men specifically. Um just, just, we, well, when, when we, we kind of cross paths because I had a tweet about, you know, just like, you know, can we stop talking about uh what was it? it was just something like, you know, can we you know, we're not gonna be able to convince racists to not be racist. We need to be talking about the issues and making sure that we're reaching the people
3: that we actually need people to turn who aren't to voting. Point.
2: Yes, the people who aren't voting because more than half or half to more than half of the population that was eligible that was eligible to vote. Not people who've been disenfranchised and that's a whole nother, you know, conversation and yes. just people that we need to be engaging but people who were eligible to vote and just did not vote, right? Because a lot of people yes. out there who should be eligible, who ought to be eligible, or who don't know they're eligible, who need to be, you know, uh, uh, assisted with being a part of the voting process as well. But, you know, there is this fixation on trying to convince the quote unquote typical, stereotypical, I should say, Trump voter and mm-hmm. why they need to come into the Democratic fold instead of actually building up the coalition. That is already making up the Democratic, you know, base, base. or voting yes. space. Um, and yes. you responded, you were like, "Yes, I wrote about it." <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I know this piece is beautiful. Can you, can you so just talk to me a little about about like because I know why I think that is. from so kind of your analysis and understanding and writing, particularly as someone who does take the, make the point of communicating in Black spaces. Because that's the other thing, right? We have an issue with a, a party and a political structure that acts like it's inconvenient to even engage, build, and and, and and inform in our actual spaces until, like, a few weeks before
3: an election because it's absolutely necessary. you got to chill out.
2: <laughs>
3: oh, yes. And it's like clockwork. It happens every mm-hmm. election cycle. And quite as it's kept, you know, black people have been feeling like this for decades, even when we got yes. the ability to vote. And there is this kind of assumption that, you know, black people just came out and drove to support Hillary, uh, Bill Clinton, excuse me, Bill Clinton in the 90s. But in 1996, that was some of the lowest black voter turnout ever. So, of course, among mm-hmm. the ones, the black people who came out to vote, they're going to vote Democratic. But there's always been, I think, this sense that this system is just not enough. And I've been hearing, you know, we got to hold our nose since I had the ability to vote in 2004. That was like the first election that I could vote in. And so we've always Mm -hmm. been hearing this. So I think to your your point, one, about, you know, reaching people who can, you know, can vote, but they just feel disaffected by the process um, and why, you know, Democrats aren't reaching out to them. I think there's a few reasons for that. I think one is that – it's worked so far. I mean, and you know, I think other than Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton, but I think for the most part, they can kind of rest on their laurels a little bit and put to put forth a Democratic candidate and kind of speak to these identity issues. And a lot of us, you know, are going to be drawn to that. So I think for them, it's like, oh, well, we don't need to talk about economics because you know, you get Bill Clinton out there play a saxophone and you know politics can be a little bit silly and that Nancy Pelosi can do a little clap and people are drawn to personality so for them they've been doing it for as long as they have because it's effective and then two I think is just we live in a white supremacist system and I'm just going to step back and say that I, I think most people in this country, I think most people in this world have economic anxiety because we live under a capitalist system. It's meant to extract the wealth from the masses of people who are doing most of the labor. So I think, you know, of course, there's a valid claim for people in the Midwest who, uh across race, people in the South and, and all over the country, who are dealing with offshoring of, of labor. They're dealing right. with, you know, this race to the bottom of wages. So, so fundamentally, my piece is the anti-capitalist piece. But it's also kind of told through the the eyes of black people who are dealing with its effects and not just Trump voters. So to me, yes, they are experiencing this, but it's not just them. And the attention is disproportionately on them. Absolutely, and I appreciate
2: that framing right there when you say that this is fundamentally an anti-capitalist, you know, the, 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 this is ultimately an anti- a story of anti-capitalism and anti-capitalist expression told through the lens of these black people who have, who have this experience and people always talk about, oh, like, well, that's, that's something, you know, oh, down south is blah, blah, blah. That's true, but when you talk about northern cities, when you talk about places like your Milwaukee, like, like uh, Chicago, um, like Buffalo, you're talking about very hyper segregated communities that have had systemic legacies of segregation. You talk about this in your piece. You said the legacy of this segregation persists, and, and you talk about how even though there weren't specific Jim Crow type policies, you know, Milwaukeeans still enforce an anti black racial caste system through their real estate market. We've learned about this yes. through the Detroit. Um, I remember when I was in grad school for urban planning, uh, also lawyer went to grad school for urban planning first, but there's this book about uh, post war Detroit and urban planning and they talk about, you know, the early days of redlining before it went national and how, you know, uh, banks disincentivized having integrated neighborhoods. I mean, but this was happening in the north. It wasn't happening in the South. And we're talking about the Great Migration, you're talking about a struggle for people who want to get more money for their labor, right? I mean, so I appreciate your framing this in that in that terminology. But we see, and I wonder your thoughts about this, we see this national conversation happening about what does it mean to be anti-capitalist, and for some people that specifically means what does it mean to be socialist, but we're seeing that come through a very particular lens that treats all of our, 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 our experiences as if we don't need to delineate and really look at particular groups to understand yes. what are their unique relationships. So I appreciate that you that you carve out that you do have this anti-black racial caste system that has existed, particularly in Midwestern and Northern cities. At the same time, we're talking about this anti-capitalist struggle. So can you just talk to me about, like, the intersection between those two things? Because it's not just, okay, we're just anti-capitalist, so that's enough. Actually acknowledging that black voters, workers, families, communities have this lens is really important.
3: Yeah, I think it's, um, it intersects in a, in a couple ways. I think as a, you know, activist and an organizer, it's always important to acknowledge that because the groups that we're trying to get at, if they're not already, you know, thinking about capitalism as a fundamental problem, they definitely see white supremacy as an issue. They definitely see how, uh, a racist system has affected them. So if you want to pull these groups in with talking about capitalism, you have to relate to something, relate, uh, with them, on something that they are familiar with. And then you can connect it and say, here's a fundamental issue. I mean, and it started with the very creation of race. You could take it all the way back to Bacon's Rebellion in the 1700s. We would not have the the entrenched system of chattel slavery without white supremacy being able to cultivate that. You would not be able to have the extensive wealth that the North experienced and thereby the country. You wouldn't have these planters to have a caste system in the South and be able to retain chattel slavery without the creation of a black race and a white race. That's what it comes out of. You know, the history of the earth didn't form with us having these delineations and races. And capitalism has been able to survive because we created that delineation in race, because we said, okay, white folks, you know, you're working class, I see y'all hanging out with the black workers, you know, on this plantation in Virginia, we got to cut all that out. That's where we get the black codes from. That's where we get Jim Crow segregation from. So anybody who says that they are, you know, a part of a left organization or they're socialist, they have to understand just how intertwined racism has become with capitalism, in the foundation of America. And so from then, from there you can say, okay, how do we unravel that? You don't unravel that by saying we need to be colorblind. You unravel it by saying, okay, we need to get at the, uh, the harm and redress the harm that we've had against these communities that creates the sort of massive wealth gap that we have. You know, one of the issues that I really want to look into is when we talk about, you know, the wealth gap between the top 1% or top 10% and the 99% or the 90%, how much of that is um, informed by the wealth gap between the races, between, you know, the fact that we've got ten times more white wealth than black wealth. If you care about the problems of capitalism, you have to care about the disparities across race because that is the wealth gap. It's a racial wealth gap that informs a larger wealth gap. Well, I'm going to play devil's
2: advocate for a moment, and I hate playing devil's advocate because I absolutely <laughs> agree with you. But, I mean, if we just – if we get rid of the wealth gap, then we get rid of the wealth gap. I mean, why does it matter that we have to, like, get all particular and start doing that type of stuff? I mean, like, does that really matter? Because if we're just lifting up everybody and we're lifting up everybody, we got rid of the gap. I think I it's I – I can't even say uh, this with a uh, straight face. <laughs> Go earnestly,
3: ahead. right? Well, yeah, I think artist. we gotta we got to step back from that assumption and say, well, how do you get mm. rid of that gap? You know, there's an assumption yeah. that it's just poof and it's going to be gone. But right. we face a system where talking about free health care, talking about um Medicaid, talking about uh welfare has all been framed with kind of an anti-black lens. So if you want to get at these kind of uni- universal programs, unfortunately, you have a lot of white people who don't want universal programs because to them, that means you're benefiting people who've not worked hard enough. And that is code word for black people, for Latinos, it's for this lazy person and that lazy person that usually has some melanin in them. So I am very curious as to what kind of universal programs, you know, we can actually have um, that's going to gain wide support without addressing the fact that they are disproportionately affecting people of color. And not only looking at, you know, how you even kind of get popular support, but how is it administered? Is it, right. be, is it going to be administered widely enough to get to these black communities? You know, just kind of going off Absolutely. on a tangent a little bit, you know, thinking about um, the the huge uh, trillion dollar student loan debt crisis that we have. The federal government is, you know, kind of giving these people, and that's a quote, unquote, universal program. The federal government is talking about, you know, giving people reimbursements now. And it's so paltry. They're getting, like, a a fraction of the people who have student loan debt. And the Mm -hmm. number one demographic that has this crushing student loan debt is black women. So how are we going to get to these universal programs if we do not say, okay, you know, this group, we need to be speaking to you. We need to be speaking to your issues. What is it that your community needs? And by that I'm talking about black people. We are – at the bottom of virtually every socioeconomic indicator. So if you do not get at that, you're not going to get even approach the level of, of parity that you need to be able to close those gaps. Mm-hmm.
2: hmm mm-hmm. Agreed. And just even thinking about what you're just talking about in terms of how we begin to close these gaps, how we begin to implement these universal, you know, uplifting programs that exist. I mean, you're absolutely right. We already know that when that that that, that laws you know, we already know that laws, that policies, that programs that are, you know, colorblind or they're just neutral, anybody can apply. It all depends upon how they are actually administered and what we are looking for when we're claiming universal. We look at the various civil rights titles and how they have been, you know, administered, right, as a a remedial measure since their uh, passage, Um, you know, we look at who actually ends up benefiting and who is still not nearly benefiting as, as much, even though it might have been particular groups in struggles that led to the passage to begin with. I mean, right? It, it, it's just—it's just so much that goes into when we think about affirmative action and what affirmative action is. It, you know, it can't just be oh, this exists and it's universal, so it's going to benefit everybody. I mean. We've had social security. Social security existed and it was was universal except for it intentionally, the way it excluded particular jobs actually excluded, you know, black working people from being able to participate in this new system. And so there has to be some intentionality even when we're talking about having, there has to be some intentionality even when we're talking about having universal programming. And I feel that we are in a space right now where there are people who are becoming more increasingly willing to call that out and, and, and have that discussion, but we still have people who purport to lead in movement, organizational, or even, you know, candidate spaces that are very reluctant to dig into that nuance and analysis yes. to really flesh that out because universal just means universal, which we both have discussed. It doesn't. Doesn't
3: necessarily trickle down to you know the black yeah. folks who need it, and this and obviously you know I think you know where both of us are coming from, I don't maybe I shouldn't be speaking for you, but universal programs is something that we should be fighting for you know mm-hmm. I'm fighting for you know fifteen dollars minimum wage to have living Absolutely. wages to have a job guarantee to have free health care, free education, you know higher education. I'm looking forward to that, I'm looking forward to a green new deal. I think it has to be a dual thrust. I think you absolutely, absolutely need those programs and you need people who understand the nuance and who are going to advocate for black people because you could, you could list kind of all boats, but that gap in between, you know, these two distinct groups won't necessarily change. So if every black person gets free care, which I would love, if every black person, you know, gets a job through the New Deal, you still have this large racial wealth gap that has, you know, uh, trickled from Centuries of discrimination against Black people—it's trickled from from centuries of the free labor that was extracted from us. It's tr- mm-hmm. it, it trickled from cheap labor that was extracted from us through sharecropping and through state governments and, and city governments. Who our you know grandparents and great grandparents—they paid their tax dollars into these you know local governments. Only Mm -hmm. for them to discriminate against them and then not give them the same wages. So teachers, for instance, in you know Louisiana or Georgia, they weren't black teachers weren't getting the same amount. They were getting a fraction of the money that white teachers were making. So you you take you add all that up and you have decades and centuries of a wealth gap that we have not been able to benefit from. So even if you know kind of the lower rungs get pushed up, that gap will always persist. Which means you've got some people basically inequality. You will always have some people who got a little more access to education, a little more access, but we ain't going to be socialists overnight, a little more access to the things that money can provide that we won't have. So how do you get at that? So, right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> We're definitely not going to be socialists overnight, and we can't be colorblind socialists in the interim, because it just does not work. Our Constitution allegedly is colorblind, but we know in reality that's, that's not how it works. Um, Since so I think we are on the same page with this, mm, Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So yep. no, I really do really <laughs> appreciate you for hopping on to talk about this because we're thinking about what does it mean to build out, you know, these movement spaces, and particularly as we're going into yet another uh, uh, presidential election cycle. And I caution everyone to not get so caught up in 2020 that you overlook mm-hmm. the fact that we have local elections happening all across the country. Right here in 2019 and to state elections too, if we're going to be base building, if we're going to be really talking about some of these structural issues, we have to be building that local support. Yes, I'm in favor of Medicare for all, but it's not just going to be a federal top-down thing. We got to be talking to people at the local level about what this actually means, how does it translate. I just said to someone recently, Green New deal, that sounds so awesome, I'm in. How do you go explain this to people on the block? How do you go yep. explain that, you know, to, to, to people in the West Virginia? How do you go to the holler and talk to people about Green New Deal? Like, how do you do that? What does that look like? And how are we building that into the way that we're not only discussing these issues because we know they're important, but actually making the plans to build and organize with people and not just dictating and speaking at them? Because unfortunately, especially with us educated types, that can unfortunately mm. happen at times, right? We talk to people or at them instead of building with them. Because, yes, I might be able to recite all these different reports, et cetera, and I might know all the literature, but so-and-so, you know, Michael from, you know, 35th Street knows his community, right? He knows how to boo the people on the block, and that's a skill that
3: you and I don't necessarily have because we're not from there. Right. Yeah. And um, with that, I'm going to shout out, you know, one of the organizers that I, I met and interviewed a bit after my initial trip to Milwaukee, Angela Lane. She's doing some great mm-hmm. work, literally going block to block. That's the name of her organization. It's called Block. <laughs> it's Black Leaders Organizing Community. She's in Wisconsin. Oh, she helped okay. get Tony Evers and the lieutenant governor elected. Um, and mm-hmm. they were going door to door, ensuring that, you know, That's that really they knew neat. how to speak. To the people. And it has to be, you know, outside of electoral politics. You touched on that. I'm sorry if you were like trying to close because you got me excited because this is what I do too. Um, but oh, so we
2: to really gotta, we really gotta connect then again, <laughs> cause this is what I do too. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
3: I work, I work with, with, like I said, working class folks in East New York, Brooklyn, and we, we have to go beyond, you know, the electoral strategy and start talking about mass mm-hmm. organizing so that we're pushing Absolutely. those people. Once we, we do elect them, we do elect people who, you know, uh, might have our best interests at heart. You always gotta push them, cause they're going to be facing a lot of, you know, outside special interests. Um, So we always need to have a mass movement as our foundation in order to push these people and kind of work outside of the electoral political realm. Absolutely,
2: absolutely. Well, yeah, I appreciate you so much because I think that's a great note to leave on. And we just had two amazing, uh, you know, local elections happen earlier this week. You know, Chicago, they avoided having another Gailey in charge. Amazing. We have Toni Perkwinkle and Lori Lightfoot, two black women. Chicago's going to have a, its first black woman mayor, either way you slice it. But I think what your point in saying is that um, about holding people accountable, even if they're quote unquote on our side, is absolutely right because you have to build accountability into the process of support. You have a, a several you know progressives who put, made it through in terms of runoff in, uh, in terms of the aldermanic races in Chicago. And you also have an amazing win with Sis Maria Haddad. Who won, um I think it was in the automatic, the 49th board. She just won outright last night. So, that was pretty awesome. And then in New York, you guys just had Jamani Williams become the, the new public advocate in the special election replace of Tish James. So, we're seeing progressives of color in particular, black progressives, more, more yeah. even specifically, taking these positions, and it's great that they're getting elected, but we absolutely have to be a part of that accountability. Accountability is not just for the people that we view as adversarial to our causes and our issues. Being there and being that voice and that presence, even when it's people that are our allies and our comrades is necessary because they need that support. They need that, that that balance. They need that check. They need us built into the process so that they can stay on task to do what we put them there to do. Right. Absolutely, girl. I appreciate you so much for this conversation. Then. <laughs> I
3: this appreciate you sending that tweet that had me <laughs> right through and that had us connect. Absolutely. Twitter is this, a mess, but sometimes where is a mess. Twitter good. is a
2: mess, but the face <laughs> aligned on this one. And I definitely, sure did. I definitely look forward to connecting with you again, online, offline, wherever time. Online. <laughs> Absolutely. You all, this has been another edition of the New A. Fenella system. Tell them where they can find you if they want to read more of your work or follow you
3: or support in some way. You can find me on Twitter. at My name is hard to pronounce so or even to type. So just look up Miss Jabali and you should be able to pull me up, M-I-S-S-J-A-B S S J in boy, A-L-I. That's Miss Jabali on Twitter and Instagram. And, um, yeah, I usually put my writing up on Twitter because, you know, I'm a millennial. I don't really have a website yet. I barely use LinkedIn, so just look at Twitter.
2: (laughs) I'm struggling. I'm in that weird – I'm slightly older, so I'm in that weird toxic universe generation. Like, I'm dependent upon whose analysis it is, I might – some days I'm a millennial, some days I'm not. (laughs) I'm rarely ever, almost never a Gen Xer, which is very weird because there's like a two-year gap in a lot of Uh places, and I'm like – but they call us zennios. We're the Goonies. Yeah, I've heard of that.
3: No, I've I've heard of that. So I – since I've heard it from at least two people, then I think it counts. That's I mean, that's I've, data I've point. read
2: they're, they're like I read two articles about it, and they do refer to it. <laughs> I, I'm like I was like I like this. This makes sense. Yeah, I'm a sense. pocket universe baby. I, I, it totally makes sense. Anyway, I appreciate you so much for joining <laughs> me on safe travels. And Thank you so sense. much. Let's get let's get up soon. Peace. Absolutely. Take care.